0: This morning, if you've got a page of notes, you'll notice at the top the title of the sermon. And the title is The War of Christmas. Okay, I just want to right off the bat, I want to note what my title does not say. It does not say The War on Christmas. It says The War of Christmas. You know, without going down too many rabbit holes, let me just make an observation with that in mind. It seems too many of us in the church would rather especially this time of year for some reason, we'd just rather take up arms against non-believers and non-Christians over kind of sometimes very silly things instead of doing the hard work of taking the saving gospel of Christ to them this time of year. We can be concerned, and I think we should be concerned, about the commercialization of Christmas. Uh, we're predisposed towards that anyway, aren't we? We're predisposed towards consumerism. Our nature is kind of bent on just acquiring more and more and more stuff. And the reality is that if we want to be distracted by presents and gifts and lights and Santa Claus and all of those things, we will. If we want to look for distractions, they're easily found this time of year. One other just quick observation with the idea of the war of Christmas and the war on Christmas. I see more outrage, especially on social media, about the color of cups at Starbucks more than... The sin that's in our own homes, that's in our own hearts, that's in our own communities. And so I hope this is an encouragement to you before we move into our text this morning. But Christian brothers and sisters, let's redeem the time. Instead of being upset about so many things, let's just take the gospel of Christ to people that are actually a little bit more open to it this time of year. So instead of getting on our soapbox, and I'm going to step off of mine here in a second, but instead of getting on our soapbox, let's let's be Christ to people this Christmas season to remind them that the greatest gift has already been given. It's God's son. And so uh, don't get irritated. Don't get upset. If people tell you happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, it's okay. You can tell them Merry Christmas back, and God will be honored. Because remember... Christ isn't confined to the common greetings of one time of year, of one season. Jesus Christ resides in the heart of his people all year long. All right, so we're not talking about the war on Christmas this morning. Then what are we talking about? Let let me explain. It's the war of Christmas. I bet you've never thought of Christmas as a war before. I can't say I really have either until, until we're going through Paul Tripp's Advent study this season. And in one of the days, he brought this idea to light. Um, So I'm going to borrow some of his words today as we go along, some nuggets of wisdom from him along the way. I'm not intending to sensationalize this idea or try to add more drama to the Christmas story. Think about the Christmas story for a second. There is plenty of drama there already. And so that's not my intent, but I think as we let this idea of Christmas being a war sink in, I want us to think back, not just through the birth, but also just history in general. Biblical history, world history, they're really one and the same. But think about the Old Testament. The forces of the enemy are constantly coming against God's people. Constantly. We see Israel's enemies attack them. We see Israel just constantly in a state of idolatry we see unholy sacrifices being made we see just rampant disobedience within the nation and just in general a lot of times just chaos surely the sinful nature of man plays its role in those things Um, but we know that satan is described as the god of this age and he has some degree of sway in this world as granted by god himself just think about the story of job for instance But despite all of that, despite Satan's constant attacks, God, in his sovereignty and wisdom and love, he did not leave Israel to fend all for themselves. He gave them prophets to warn them, to speak the truth to them. Then he gave them judges to rescue them from their enemies, to set them back on the right path. He gave them priests to teach his commands faithfully to the people. And we see kings that are given to Israel to rule them, and to lead them in the ways of the Lord. But if you know much about biblical history, you also know how most of those things turned out. You've got prophets that fell into their own patterns of sin. We see judges that failed to fully live out the call that God had on their lives. We see priests that were just as prone to sin as everyone else. And we see kings, most of them ended up working against the God that put them on the throne. Then, for hundreds and hundreds of years, it seemed like God just went silent, didn't it? Maybe God had gone. Maybe they had thought that he had lost. Maybe they thought that he just didn't care or that he was retreating and licking his wounds from being beaten or that he was just defeated altogether already. Where had God gone? He'd given Israel, his people, all of these ways to show them his care And they had rejected them almost across the board. And so probably for many it seemed that he had just gone. Think closer to the birth of Christ. What was going on in the time? What was decreed by Herod? Infanticide. The killing of children. Where was God in all of that? Children were being murdered out of the crazed thirst of control for Herod the Great in secular writings He is described as a wicked man. He killed even his own family out of paranoia and jealousy. Augustus even said of him, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. It sure seemed like evil was winning the war. Here's what we need to understand. Things were happening underneath the surface and behind the scenes that no human eye could see and that no human mind could understand or comprehend. And God's eternally wise plan was about to be kicked into the next gear. Jesus' birth in a manger was a demonstration of God launching an all-out war on the enemy and on sin itself. And if we see Christmas as a war, then we need to look into the manger and see a warrior. This warrior came to do battle with the enemy, and for our sake, he would fight. Conflict was inevitable. This is what Paul Tripp has to say. The life of the baby in a manger would march toward a moment when the devil would throw everything in his arsenal toward Jesus. But Jesus would defeat the devil in this life. He would defeat him on the cross, and he would defeat him by the empty tomb. Each victory was for us so that we would be able to resist the devil's deceptions and temptations in our own lives. See, Jesus was going to learn And he would grow into a man, and he was going to face the same thing that Adam faced. He was going to face the temptations of the enemy. He was going to stand face to face, toe to toe with Satan as the second Adam, and the stakes were the highest that they've ever been. In fact, the defeat of Jesus would be our doom, but the victory of Jesus would guarantee our hope of victory as we too would face the seductive voice of the tempter. So it's no overstatement, I don't think, to say that all of history hinged on this battle between Jesus and Satan. Now, we know that the battle is not completely over because you and I face temptation today. This battle comes to us in all kinds of forms. It comes from inside of us by way of our hearts and outside of us by way of the enemy and the world. Brothers and sisters, it is not a surprise to you for me to say that evil is lurking in the shadows every day. It is. And it's tempting us to do certain things like being impatient with our children, like acting out of anger towards a spouse, like fantasizing in our minds about things that we shouldn't, like manipulating circumstances and people in order to maintain control or to lie about others to make ourselves look better. And that's just the... skimming skimming the surface. Evil lurks in the shadows every day wanting us to fall into those patterns. It works hard to get us to step over God's moral boundaries every day. So I absolutely think the case can be made for life on this side of eternity being war. Ephesians 6 that we'll get to in a few weeks as we preach through Ephesians. Ephesians 6 certainly paints that kind of picture, doesn't it? So I want to look this morning quickly at two historical events where this war has been plainly seen and compare and contrast them for just a moment. So turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. It's a familiar text, I'm sure. I want to read through it and then we will pause and pray. I'm reading out of the ESV translation this morning. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Oh God, so many comparisons can be drawn to this situation in our own lives. And we are tempted to compromise. We are tempted to doubt. We are tempted to desire our own way above yours. Help us to see this morning that when we fall and we give in, Lord, the outcome is just as terrible as it was in the garden. Because it, it wrecks our lives. It wrecks our families. But Lord, you are a God of hope. And so I pray that you would teach us this morning about conflict, about the war that's actually here, and Lord, that we would see Jesus as the warrior king. In his name we pray, amen. Do you guys see the conflict that was going on here in chapter 3? Now there's a lot of sermons that could be preached out of this text, and we're not going to do all of that this morning, but I want us just to notice the conflict here. This is where the war really began, right here. The goodness and the wisdom and the authority of God are questioned and downplayed by Satan, aren't they? And they would quickly be questioned and downplayed by Adam and Eve as well. But from this, this real and historical passage, we see and learn so much about some things. And there's three things that we're just going to quickly go through that we see and learn from this passage. Number one, it's the frailty of the human race. Number two, it's the schemes of the devil. And thirdly, the righteousness of God. We see these things from this text. Number one, you and I are frail in this way. We are incredibly susceptible to the lies of the devil. We are. If you don't believe me, look back to Ephesians 2 that we've been talking about, that we had preached about about a month ago. Right there, Paul has just taught us so well about... Christ's redeeming blood and how without the spirit's life-giving power there's no way any one of us would receive salvation not only would we not receive it but we would not want it the truth is that god came to us god pursued us despite our darkness despite our rebellion this is all to the praise of his glory he repeats in that passage Human frailty was true for Adam and Eve and brothers and sisters. It's true for every person sitting in this room today. Number two, the schemes of the devil we learn about from Genesis chapter three, and we learn that they've not really changed a whole lot. He still uses lies. He still uses deception to get us to believe that either God is not real or that his words are not true or that it's not important to obey them. Think about the last sin that you committed the last conscious sin that you committed, it probably falls under one of these three categories. Satan deceived you into thinking that God is not real, there's no consequences, that his words are not true, or that it's just not important to obey him. And because of our human frailty, we are easily deceived by these lies, easily deceived by these schemes. Brothers and sisters, the enemy is real. The enemy is cunning And so it takes the power of the indwelling spirit within us to resist temptation, to see through his evil schemes, and then to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. But this passage number three we also see is about, we see God's righteousness here. Here's the truth. God does not ignore sin. I want to be very clear about that. I want us to understand that God does not ignore sin. He didn't do that with Adam and Eve, did he? The very first time this occurred, you'd think in this situation there may be a little bit of leeway. Well, it was the first time, you know? Maybe we don't kick them out of the garden just yet. But that's not what God did. Sin has consequences. Brothers and sisters, God would not be righteous if he condoned or ignored sin. And so we find out, if you keep reading in Genesis, that a blood sacrifice was made. And the skins of that animal that was killed covered the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve. God does not ignore sin, and God does not sweep it under the rug. Brothers and sisters, God deals with sin. Adam and Eve could not stay in the garden any longer. There was real punishment for their sin. And guess what? It stung. It hurt. To not have the same relationship with God, to be removed from the perfect paradise that he had created them to live in, it stung and it had an impact for the rest of their lives. God deals with our sin, but he doesn't just judiciously just dole out punishment. Like he's some evil dictator who takes joy in heart at hurting people. He doesn't just give out. Now he does deal out judgment, but he does so even still with the offer of hope. And I want us to see this. Just glance forward to verse 15 of chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This goes on to explain the war that all of creation had just been plunged into. Read it with me. It says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, this is, you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The war had begun. But even in that, even in that curse that we see, there's a glimmer of light and there's a glimmer of hope because we know one of Eve's offspring one day would be the snake crusher who would save the world. This glimmer of hope that we see here in Genesis chapter three, in Matthew chapter four, it explodes onto the scene. It explodes, not just with this glimmer of light, but with this brightness. In fact, God chose to use a light to guide them to where Jesus was. The result of Adam and Eve's actions in the garden, they set in motion, almost like dominoes. They set in motion the series of events. It was planned by an omniscient, all-knowing God. This motion, it would include one day a very similar standoff with the devil. First one was set in the beautifully perfect garden setting, but the next one was going to take place in a dry and barren desert. And we see that in Matthew chapter four. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter four. I think even in, even in this, the setting of where these confrontations and where these battles were happening, uh, just adds to the effect that we're talking about, the effect of sin. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command those stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It's written, Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Here we see in this text, The second Adam doing something that not only the first Adam, but none of the rest of us could do or ever hope to do. Stand against the attack of of the enemy for a lifetime without fail. None of us could do that. Adam couldn't even do that in the setting of perfection in the garden. For Jesus to atone for the sin of every person who believes, he would have to be a perfect man. The sacrifice on the cross would have to be a perfect sacrifice. He would have to stand against the enemy for his whole life and not yield in any way. Because of sin, no person on earth was qualified to do this. No other person was qualified to be the second Adam. And so, because of that reason, we know from the book of John chapter 3 that God sent his own son to stand in the place of those who couldn't. To stand in the place of those who could not live a sinless life. To offer hope and salvation. And so we see that Jesus came as the warrior king to do battle with the enemy and win a victory that none of us could ever win on our own. Jesus came to battle with the enemy on our behalf. See, we just read about it in, in Genesis chapter 3. The first man battled the enemy. And what happened? He lost. Mankind lost and so God sent his son to battle with enemy, the enemy and win. Now, this is amazing news. If we just stopped right there and cut it off, that's enough. That is awesome. But there's more. This is not an infomercial, but there is more. Okay? There is more to it. And I want us to see this today. Jesus came to earth to do all of this for us so that when we battle with the enemy, we can win too. His victory is our hope in the struggles of this life and our hope in the next life. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, it takes surrender. Not to Satan and his evil schemes, not giving in to the temptation that's so common to man, but it takes surrender to the one who came to save sinners. If you live your life thinking that you can stand up against Satan and his schemes better than Adam did, you can't do it you're mistaken. I think most of you would admit that, that you've messed it up. Everybody oversteps God's moral bounds, his moral commands. That's true. But most of us just don't just come right out and say, it's no big deal. Everybody does it, so we don't really need Jesus. But you know what? A bunch of us live that way. We may not admit it, but a bunch of us live like we don't really need Jesus at all. Is that you today? Today? Are you living like you just don't really need Jesus at all? You know, it's nice to think about him this time of year. It's nice to feel good about observing his birth. But you want to know something interesting? Jesus never tells us to do this. Jesus never tells us to celebrate his birth. But he does tell us to celebrate something. His death. He tells us to remember him in his death. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Why would Jesus ask us to recall the horrors of the cross and not the joy of his birth? Why? I think the answer is simple. And if you read through the Gospels, you see it pretty clear. The cross is where the battle was won. Remember, he won't sweep sin under the rug. He deals with sin. There had to be restitution for the sin of mankind. There had to be payment made. And Jesus was sent as that payment, the perfect payment on the cross. Of course, this was confirmed and verified three days later when he rose again. But the debt that was paid was given on the cross. And so that's why we're called. That's why we're instructed. I would say commanded to recall his death and not his birth. Now, it is not wrong to observe his birth, obviously, but we ought not to forget about his death in doing so. Saying that you want Jesus or saying that you have Jesus and then living this life like you're ignoring him shows that you really don't want him at all. It shows that you would rather depend on yourself than on someone else. But the gospel message tells us that we're incapable of living this way, of living a perfect life on our own. We cannot live a life that is good enough to get us access to the Father because it would have to be perfection and we can't do that. We have to surrender. We must surrender our own will and our own ways for the ways and the will of God. We have to surrender. Paul Tripp also says this, it's a huge comfort that At Christmas, we celebrate the second Adam, the chief warrior who came to do battle on our behalf, to win victory for us so that by his power, we could resist, stand fast and conquer. By grace, Jesus was willing to come to earth and stand in Adam's place so that we would be graced with daily victory over temptation and sin. Man, the Christmas story is this incredible milestone in a war story that precedes the cross, one that gives us incredible hope regardless of our circumstances. Brothers and sisters, let me just take this opportunity to tell you it's okay to be not okay. It's okay. Please don't think that you have to come to church and put on a fake face for the rest of us and pretend that you're okay. Because we've missed the meaning of church if we do that. This is a place to reveal your brokenness so that your brothers and sisters, by God's mercy, can begin to encourage you in the gospel and lead you back to the cross. And in that way, it doesn't matter your circumstances. God's there for you. God loves you. He's given His Son. He's given the gospel so that in our brokenness and in our not being okay, we actually can be okay. It's because you let Jesus take control of your life. You surrender to Him and His ways and not your own. As a church, our goal, our hope, our call really is to proclaim Jesus all year long, not just at Christmas time. And so it's our hope that you hear the Christmas story this year and are moved by it and by the Spirit to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord. When you celebrate Christmas, whether that's this coming week or some other time with your family, I I hope that you would remember that Christmas really is a war story. It's a war story, one that was fought on our turf for our sake by the hero of the story, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Now, he's not begging you to come to him like he's helpless, but he is calling you to surrender. It's in this surrender that we actually find Freedom. Real freedom, freedom from the curse and the penalty of sin and this life, and freedom to live for the one who surrendered everything for your salvation. In closing, I want to draw our attention to the final verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing that we sang before. And maybe it's, maybe it was an unfamiliar verse to you. I want to read through this together. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble throne. Rise, the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us, the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now erase. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. May the Lord Jesus fix his throne in our hearts to rule and reign over us as he desires, all because as the second Adam, Jesus has reinstated believers through his love, a love that was displayed on the cross. Merry Christmas to you all. As you gather, I do pray that you would remember Christmas as a war story, one that in the end, honestly, has already been won. We battle skirmishes here in this life, but Jesus already holds the victory. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we don't have to live this life cowering in fear because you have fought and you have succeeded. Where we could not, were we given hundreds of years to try, none of us could get it right. And we know from the book of James that even when we've even messed up one point of the law, it's as if we're guilty of it all, breaking it all. And the joy of this is, Lord, that you came to redeem those under the law. And so, God, in this Christmas season, as we reflect and think about Christ in the manger, when we look in, may we see a warrior who battled sin on our behalf so that we could live this life and not be ruled by it anymore yeah, Lord, we're probably going to fall, and we're going to mess up some of the battles, but God give the church give the church the love to pick those fallen soldiers up and set them right, remind them of the cross where the payment was paid, so that we might have eternal life. And so, Lord, as we give you glory and song yet again this morning. May not just our lips and our minds as we think and sing these words, but our hearts be moved towards you. In your name we pray, amen.